Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday the 13th of November. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear us chat to Michael Harden all about what makes a perfect picnic. And uh, we also chatted to Jacob Hickey from SBS about the new series Addicted Australia. Also, we got to talk to Fable Parrot uh, about dingoes, which is very fun and exciting. Um, I had a chat about a chatty over informative man and also Broden Kelly from Arnie Donna came in to talk about their new Netflix show, Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun. And reviewing books, Fee Riot looked at Cherry Beach by Laura McPhee Brown and our Friday funny bugger rounding it all off was Shirley Hood. Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. It's that time on a Wednesday for a much-needed food interlude with Michael Harden. Morning, Michael. Morning. How are you all? Good, thank you. Excellent. Um, what, how's your week been? It's been pretty good. I uh, got to um, actually go out and eat a couple of times, which is pretty exciting. The first one, I felt like I was on the training wheels again. It felt very odd. But by the time I got to uh, Flower Drum on Monday oh. and was uh, tucking into a bit of picking duck, I thought, yeah, yeah, I remember how to do oh, it. Suits you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've all been it. there. It was tough. It was really <laughs> tough. Uh, but is it just is it just restaurants that uh, has picked your palate? Well, I sort of think that you know restaurants. I think there's still a lot of people that are feeling a little uneasy about being indoors and sort of getting used to being around people and everything. And so the, I think that one of the interesting things that came out of the lockdown and everything is the rise of the picnic mm. and um, and the way that people have um, you know restaurants. You know that this whole let's just use this word and move on pivoting. Of, of the businesses, you know, it's sort of like, and, and picnics have been one of the things because people have all of a sudden realised, like we've rediscovered parks, and mm-hmm. um, which I thought was sort of an interesting thing because in the history, I was looking at the history of picnicking and um, and it sort of, it started off, the, the phrase picnic um, started in France, which, and it was spelled, you know, of course, being French, it was P-I-Q-U-E, N-I-Q-U-E, which, you know, sounds picnic. like sort of, um, you know, trashy product, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But it was like they started off, and originally picnic was like the. It was more like a like a BYO idea. So it was like you'd go to a restaurant, and everybody would a picnic was some when people brought their own booze, and then it sort of morphed into a, a meal that you would have together where everybody would bring their own food, and then after the French Revolution happened, and there was and all the royal parks and stuff opened up to the commoners, that's when it sort of moved outside. And turned into like the picnic. A picnic was something that you ate outside, which I thought was kind of interesting. With given the um, the whole uh, you know bringing of the Northcote golf golf course, you know, sort of like you know the, the rise of the picnic in Melbourne as 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 formerly uh, space that was reserved only for the few was opened up for the many. So um, I think it was kind of an interesting idea there. That and so you know, there's been a lot of places that have been around that have you know been doing some really interesting things. Like there's a couple of places that are actually calling themselves picnic concierges at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, which is there's a place called Blake's Feast, which is a sort of a quite a well-known catering company do do you know very sort of high-end stuff, and you can you can book a picnic through them, and um, it's at the Royal Botanical Gardens. They've got space that they can they can there's bookable space, picnic spaces in the Royal Botanic Gardens, and they will turn up with 
Um, you know, they bring the blankets, they bring the cushions, they bring the chairs, they bring all the food, um, and you just basically turn up, sit down, and then when you're done, you just get up and walk away, and they come and clean it up. Oh, that's you. the best. I know, absolutely. So you know, you you it's only you that's the greasy mess, not all the stuff that you've brought with you that you have to take away. So um, so it was, and there's kind of like, and you, with those, you can also, you know, you can you can even, you know, they'll, of course, you can add staff as well. So if you want to be mm. a complete wanker, you can also have somebody attending you um, <laughs> as you loll about on your hired scatter cushion. I don't know. Is this really a picnic? I mean, or is it live action role playing a picnic? <laughs> <laughs> live action role playing pre France pre revolution. <laughs> So there's, you know, but there's a lot of the other ones that are doing sort of picnic hampers and stuff so that you just go to a restaurant and you can pick it up. There's there's a place in South Yarra called Entrecote that you can, it's it's a French um, restaurant. And so you pick up a box of food, but you can also from them hire a couple of chairs and a table and, you know, just carry it over to the gardens yourself and sort of sit around Mm. on that. So uh, they're just kind of making it easier. There's a place in in, um, Carlton called Apoca that's doing great picnic campers. And so, and they're right across the road from the um, Treasury Gardens. So it's, you just, on the exhibition gardens, I should say. And so you just, you know, pick your, pre-order your picnic box and then, you know, you bring all your blankets and everything and then just but just pick up that box and go and sit in the park. So um, it's kind of like, you know, just take, but, you know, it, take, it takes a little bit, like to do a comfortable picnic, it sort of takes a little bit of effort, but, you know, I don't think you have to go too overboard, mm. you know. What, what do you think is the secret to a good picnic? I think the, the, the main thing that you have to do, like get a decent picnic blanket, number one. You know, you can't just use any old thing because it's like the ground will be moist at some stage. So you need a proper picnic blanket with a backing on it. And, um, you know, and, and the larger the better, really, I think. It's sort of like, you know, you don't, you don't want to be a skimpy little one because, you know, it's like then you've got, you've got to share your blanket with all your food and, and all of that sort of stuff. So I think, um, you know, there's some other stuff like, you know, when you're looking at um, – you just invest in a decent picnic basket if you can. And the one of the, one of the best ways of doing that is it, one of the best kind of picnic basket is to get something with a flat top so that you can also use that as an extra tabletop as well. Clever. So that there's things to put on. So that, And then if you're bringing, like, you've got your picnic basket, then if you've got an extra, like, a canvas bag or something, <clears throat> the breadboard is your friend. So you chuck your breadboard in the bottom of the basket, which holds shape so that you can bring, balance more things on it. And then you can pull the breadboard out and stick it in the middle of your picnic blanket, and that's like a tabletop as well. Mm, so. Solid tip. Solid, solid tip. Yeah, and things like you know, or you know, no, no disposables. You know, I know that we've got compostable stuff and everything, but it's like it's still going to end up as trash, and there's still going to be somebody that's left their fork or their you know bamboo skewer or you know whatever somewhere. So it's sort of like you know, best to sort of like you don't need to bring your best crockery, but it's sort of like you know, some invest in some enamel plates, you know, those sort of camping plates and stuff like that. And it's kind of like it's more civilised to have a plate that's not going to bend in half or sort of tip half your food off the thing. Real cutlery, no hassle. I'm not a huge fan of glassware at picnics. I think Mm. for wine glasses, like unless you're drinking something really amazing, some beautiful wine that, you know, it would be an offence to not to put it in a proper glass. Mm. You're sort of looking up over the the 100 plus and who's going to bring that to a picnic that's not, you know, just trying to show off. You should put your dip in a ramekin (laughs) as well. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. 
Good. But I'm, I'm a real fan of the. I'm a real fan of the um, of the sta- those stackable anodized aluminium cups. Mm-hmm. Big fan. Yeah, yeah, Big I fan. love them. Yeah, and you, especially when you you get them in the little package with the zip top, and yeah. um, you know, like the colours, and they're good for drinking everything. You know, it's so it's like, and the other thing that I think is a is quite a good thing for a picnic if you you know really trying to to. Uh, raise the stakes a bit is um cocktails are good but you need to make it you don't want to be you don't want to be you know messing with cocktails and mixing them up at the at the site so one of the things that uh, i discovered this was actually through camping at meredith one year that um one of those um camp um water holders that has Mm. a tap on it i made a negroni in there so it was just a bottle of vermouth bottle of gin, bottle of Campari, and then you just need to make sure you've got some t- some ice on the side. Mm. And then you've got Negroni on tap, which is, uh, as a friend of mine um, was saying, you know, is, is what's known as a time saver. <laughs> You'd have been popular. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. We had, we had, also, <laughs> if, you can, if you can manage to get your hands on a picnic table pre-set up, what I found revolutionary is bringing a tablecloth, just ups. Ups the ante yeah. a lot. So good. Yeah, exactly. And just there is that thing about, you know, a couple of chairs, mm. you know, if you want. It's sort of like it's quite nice to sit on the ground, but it's like a couple of chairs. But it's like, you know, another thing that I think that's come in a bit, which is it's just quite a good thing for um, picnics, is that these new little portable hibachi grills. So if you can bring them in, they're really no mess, no fuss. They're sort of completely self-contained. And it's a good thing for cooking things like you know little skewers and stuff like that, which can up the up the ante. And then you know, they're, and they're all they're all really carryable. And sort of at the end of the day, you just pick it up and carry it back to your car. So it's not like you're having a great big barbecue set up or anything like that. It's like you know more a portable kind of thing. So yeah. But, um, and and when you say picnic basket, are you talking like a Yogi Bear wicker basket situation? I think you really have to go wicker if you go yeah. if you take yourself seriously and have a little pride. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, you, you're going to have to uh, go for a wicker basket because otherwise, yeah. you know, you will have other picnickers pointing and laughing if you're trying to get away with anything else. Mainly, right. mainly Michael Harden and his friends, I think. <laughs> They're Negronis. <laughs> no judgment whatsoever. <laughs> sure. Like, you know, what do you think? Uh, okay. And, of course, the massive, massive stereo. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That's the thing. Sort of like, yeah, just leave the stereo at home. Listen to it. <laughs> You know, kind of like a little, the wind in the trees or something. It's mm. like, you know, it's like you might think you've got great music taste, but the people on the next blanket may not. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Michael Harden, always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Melbourne's own Triple R. Research shows one in five Australians will have a problem with alcohol, drugs or gambling at some point in their lives. And a new series on SBS follows 10 Australians who have agreed to take part in a treatment plan that they hope will set them on a new path. Jacob Hickey is writer and series producer of the four-part documentary series Addicted Australia, which premieres tonight on SBS. And to tell us about it, the director joins us on the line now. Jacob, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Can you tell us about the access you've been given? Yeah, it's it's quite extraordinary, actually. The, the, the treatment program was run by Turning Point a National Research and Treatment Centre in Richmond, in Melbourne. And they devised the treatment program, which uh, lasted for six months. And um, we had complete access to the entire treatment, access to people's lives, the 10 people who were brave enough and good enough um, to sign up to the treatment program. So, yeah, we had access to all their um, counselling sessions, their group um, peer support sessions, and, of course, access to their lives, um, their home lives, if you like. 
which was um, probably the most extraordinary thing of all, actually. Mm. And how how delicate is is this series in putting it all together and managing uh, all the people and all the surrounding issues and sensitivities? Huge, huge. I, I, I mean, at sort of Blackfellow Films, we we make challenging, difficult shows, whether it be about Aboriginal communities or mental health or homelessness. But I can honestly say, I think this series, um, in terms of the ethics and the duty of care um, around it, was as challenging as anything that we've made. And um, our sense of responsibility to the 10 people and their families was enormous. And we had a lot of protocols in place and we've worked with some great people to provide support to everyone involved actually that also includes the production team who were involved because um when you're dealing with this kind of subject matter over this sustained period of time um people need that and people need to feel support and you have to make these things in the right way you don't just have to make them you have to do them in the right way can you tell us about some of the participants that that have a part of the program oh look i think i think without naming necessarily individuals i think that what binds them all together is and this sounds potentially glib but the truth is they're people you know they're 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 regular australians um like any of us who have through reasons of of trauma um uh succumbed to an addiction which they're now struggling to deal with and i think the thing that people will take away when they watch the series is that whether they're watching Dawn, who's who's um, 62, retired executive assistant, who's struggling with alcohol addiction, or whether they're watching Jess, who's 26, um, and, and and trying to maintain um, her sobriety through um, through the treatment program, or or any of the others. I think what they'll realise is that that they're they're people with um, lives uh, like all of us who've had to battle one of the the hardest. Um, the most challenging things anybody can be faced with. Um, and, and something that, as Dan Ludman, the professor, Dan Ludman, who runs the treatment program, says so eloquently, it's, it's, we're dealing with something that is a mental health condition. We're dealing with something that is um, a medical condition. And we need to treat addiction in that way because then we can actually start making a difference. You also um, talked about how, um, you know, quite often people will wait 20 years before they seek help. Um, and I think Australians have a, like a, a lot of preconceived ideas and misconceptions about addiction, like they're dysfunctional members of society, they're homeless, etc. cetera. Mm. Um, but, yeah, we meet these, these people that don't fall into that narrative. Um, and, like, like, why do you think breaking these preconceived ideas um, and misconceptions about addiction is, is important for not only not only the people that are addicted, but also for society as a whole? Yeah. Well, that's right. The reason they don't fall into that category is because it's a myth and a stereotype. That's why. Mm. Um, you know, we, we, we put out, um, we, 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 when we offered this out to people, we, you know, we, we saw what came through and who, who applied to be part of it. And that was the first thing that we noticed. I'm not sure what we're expecting, but that's the truth of it. The, the reality is, is that the shame and stigma attached to addiction is enormous. And that is a huge barrier to people seeking help. And unless we break that down, that 20 year delay that you're talking about, which shocked me when I heard it. I mean, when you actually think about that, that it takes two decades for someone to be able to put up their hand to ask for help. That's all our responsibility that that's happening. 
that that that's all of us that's on all of us because because the reason it isn't happening is because of the shame and stigma and we were dealing with this with mental illness weren't we 10 years ago mm. or so and it's changed and and hopefully the same can happen with addiction but you know we all have to face up to it because you know it will be someone we know it will be someone that we love it might be us if it's going to affect one in five people then how about we actually understand that this is something we have to take seriously and, um, and, and, and deal with it with compassion, really, you know. There are reports uh, in 2020 of increased uh, alcohol and drug dependence uh, in, in light of the lockdown. And I'm wondering if you can shed any light on what you observed about whether that came to fruition in the program or... Mm. Uh, Well, it's been extraordinary for everybody, hasn't it, the the last few months? And um, the treatment program was um, entering its final stages when COVID hit and um, lockdown came in, the first lockdown, that is, back in sort of March, April. Um, And Turning Point, who run the program, uh, very quickly were onto this and and developing telehealth and online um, services in order to keep the 10 people and their families, you know, keep the treatment going. But they were very concerned and it does play out in the series. And, and you know, when you're dealing with some of the most vulnerable people in society, um, facing that kind of isolation was, was a huge, huge challenge. What I would say is that um, the fact that this treatment program ran for six months and was a holistic way of looking at treatment, by that point, um, and, I, you know, I've talked to the people running the program about this, there were foundations in place for those 10 that I think gave them a lot of strength to get through that period and I think what it highlights to me is what about the up to 500,000 people who aren't able to access treatment in Australia um, and aren't able to access services because they're not available what what about those people how did those people go in lockdown and how did the people go who were teetering on the edge of addiction before lockdown started? How are those people going now when they had to cope with all the pressures that lockdown brought? What are we mm. going to do about those people? There's an insight as well that treatment can be a, a bit of a lottery and also the role of having a support network and a, a loving family. You can, it seems that the participants can be very lucky to be in that situation as well. Uh, what, what can what can the culture do um, to support those who maybe don't have loved ones that, yeah. that others do? It was an enormous surprise to me when I talked to Turning Point. You see, with Blackfella Films, we had the idea that we wanted to make something about addiction. But when we talked to Turning Point and realised that the system, it, well, is it a system? Um, it's a lottery. If you are struggling with addiction in Australia, um, it really isn't a sure thing what will happen in terms of your treatment path. You know, if you go to a doctor's with suspected diabetes, with suspected heart disease, with asthma, there will be a care plan. There will be a process. It might vary slightly, but overall there will be a process. In addiction in Australia, um, it's, it's hugely varied. It is a lottery what will happen. And so, it does actually all come back again, though, to stereotype and stigma because the reason systems aren't in place and people haven't sought help and the systems aren't there is because we haven't treated this seriously enough. We haven't taken this seriously enough. Um, 
you mentioned the family support. Often people who have narrowed their life to the point, and this is all stuff I've learned, by the way. I'm no expert. This is something that I've learned. But people have narrowed their lives to the point of um, their addiction means that people have fallen by the wayside. Support of loved ones and so on has often fallen away. Um, and so they are struggling for that support network. Um, and that's one of the things Turning Point tried to tried to help with. Um, it's also, um, there are shark um, um, who were also involved in the treatment program who run family support because you'll see from when you watch the, the series over the course of the next four weeks, it starts tonight, is that the families are impacted. You know, seven people are impacted by every, every person um, who's suffering from addiction, seven, at least seven people around them. And so those that are around that, they need support too. You know, they're struggling too. They need support to support their their loved one, but they also need support themselves. You know, this, by the time you've finished, you know, there aren't many people left who won't be touched by this in some way, which is why we have to take it seriously. Mm. Um, and just quickly, I, I'm not sure if you've contemplated this, but there's a participant that says drugs saved me after an unsuccessful IVF. And I'm wondering, mm. how do we, how do you suppose we reconcile that dichotomy? Well, I just think that that goes to the heart of the series, actually, the bravery and the honesty and the decency and the dignity of the 10 people who took part um, is what makes, I would say this, wouldn't I, but such a compelling watch, but also reveals what addiction is really, truly like. And I think we should be asking those searching questions and actually understanding that. Now, the person who said that, Sarah, in the documentary, um, you know, the context to that is a life of, of trauma that, that meant it reached that point. And what we really should actually be asking ourselves is where's the support for people like Sarah who've reached that point? That's what we should actually be asking ourselves. Um, and, you know, we should be asking ourselves questions that when we say, why can't you just stop? And, um, you know, surely you, you should just be able to stop. We, we should actually be asking different sets of questions, which is what people asking people what they need in order to stop. Mm. Um, and so I hope that over the course of the next four weeks, people actually get an education about what addiction actually is um, and how it could affect you and those that, um, those that you love, because actually we need a big, you know, we need a big education in this country about that. And then we will start to break down the stigma and stereotype. And then we will start to treat people with um, the dignity that they deserve like anybody else, anybody else who has a medical condition. Well, congratulations on putting the series together. Addicted Australia premieres tonight at 8.30pm on SBS. It continues weekly on Tuesday and uh, you can catch up on, on demand. And uh, we've been speaking with series producer Jacob Hickey. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, guys. Triple R. Four feature creatures this week. We're fortunate to be joined from Dingo Discovery Sanctuary by award-winning author and dingo expert, Favel Parrot. Hi, Favel. Hello. Hello. Nice to have you. Oh, it's great to be here. D tell us about Dingo Discovery Sanctuary. Are you open? Well, What's news? Well, it is the most amazing place, only 40 minutes from Melbourne in Tulan Vale, technically part of Melbourne. So we were shut down with you guys. Oh. And um, the dingoes missed people because it's our cuddler cub season and normally we would have people every day and the dingoes honestly missed the company. So we're back open, the dingoes are happy, we're happy and people are loving meeting our amazing Australian apex predator, the Australian dingo. 
because cuddling dingoes sounds a bit oxymoronic. Especially when you pair it with apex predator in the one sentence. <laughs> Have you ever seen a dingo cub? There is nothing cuter on this planet. I tell you, people go to pieces. We, um, It's our way in, and but we're all about education. So you come to our sanctuary, we'll give you a great talk, you'll meet an adult dingo learn all the amazing things about the smartest canid in the world, our Australian dingo. They can hear heartbeats from 25 metres away behind them, in front of them. Their ears can move independently so they can be hearing behind them and in front of them. They only look in your eyes for five seconds and they can read everything about you in five (gasps) seconds. It's all they need. So they are the most amazing animal on the planet and so sensitive, so hyper-intelligent. But then you get to cuddle these little rambunctious <laughs> cubs that will just jump all over you and you like the smiles, I tell you. Mm. It's just the most beautiful experience. <laughs> um, and we, we people leave becoming ambassadors for dingoes, which is what we're all about because they're the most um, misunderstood um, animal in Australia. They're so important. They're a native species and we need them. They will take care of our fox problem, our feral cat problem, our rabbit problem. They keep room numbers down and they keep away from humans. Mm. They're really a winner. This, so this sanctuary, uh, how, many, how many dingoes are there? Do they all have names? What's yes, the story? Yes, they all have names and we love them all. There's, we have 40 adult dingoes plus our cubs and um, – Really what we're about is research, education, but also we have a breeding program to make sure that there is a viable population, especially of alpine dingoes, which are the most threatened, in case we can ever rewild dingoes. Um, Mm. So that's really important because in the wild, dingoes are persecuted. uh, It's legal to shoot them or poison them or trap them within a three-kilometre buffer zone of private land even though they are a threatened species. So we need to try and change the laws to keep them protected because at the is, moment dingoes are not safe in Victoria. Is that the biggest threat to the alpine dingo? Absolutely, mm. human beings. Mm. So um, it's really sad and we're fighting it um, and we're working on it and that's why coming to our sanctuary, you know, people leave in love with the dingo. Once you touch a dingo, magic. You'll never <laughs> see a dingo the same again. Can you tell us about Wandy? Well, <clears throat> we're so lucky to have this amazing dingo, alpine dingo, wild, pure, at our sanctuary. He has the most incredible story because at five weeks old, somewhere in the high country near Wandilagong, so bright area, he would have been a cub with his mum and dad and other siblings. He was taken by what we think is a wedge-tail eagle because he had talon marks in his back, clear. And so that, you'd think, was the end of him. But somehow he wriggled out of that situation and dingoes are like cats. When they are frightened or picked up, they go floppy. So he was floppy and fell and landed (coughs) in someone's backyard in Wondilagong. She found him crying. She's like, is it a dog? Is it a fox? I don't know what it is. Took him to the vet and the vet said, I think this is a dingo. So we got him and DNA tested him and, yes, he is pure. So he proved absolutely that we have pure alpine dingoes in Victoria 
His siblings are pure. His parents are pure. His grandparents are pure. So we need to protect our alpine dingoes in Victoria. Mm. But he's the most famous dingo in the world. He has over 50,000 followers on Instagram. And if you want to follow him, it's at Wandy underscore dingo. Yeah, I'm a bit worried about tall poppy syndrome for Wandy because Wandy, (laughs) as you say, over 50,000, whereas the actual discovery centre where you are has 7,000. Can I I tell you he knows he's famous? He struts around. around he is um you know he knows it (laughs) so what's the what's the best case scenario look like for dingoes in victoria and how far are we off from achieving that we're so far we're so far we couldn't be further what we need is real protection for them so yes they are a threatened species that's the first step but let's take away this loophole that lets us um, kill them. There is a bounty on their heads. You can get $120 for if you kill a dingo in Victoria. Mm. So that encourages people to get them out of the national parks, lure them out with um, food, bait, whatever. We also have this terrible problem of 1080 that we use in Australia, banned all over the world. Two countries use it, New Zealand and Australia, banned all over the world because it's so hideous. So we use it for fox baiting. But what do foxes eat? Similar things to dingoes. So dingoes are taking these baits in national parks. We need to change this. It's, quolls are also taking them. So we need a new way. As I said before, dingoes will take care of foxes. So if we if we leave dingoes alone, they're going to, like, heal our ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah. and how's, the, how's the gene pool of the dingo? Well, look, because we've got Wandy, we know that there's healthy alpine dingoes out there. We need to leave them alone. We also this year have received uh, three more wild dingoes whose parents have obviously been shot or um, baited and these dingoes were skinny and uh, alone, these cubs. We've got them. They're also pure. So, And this is from all over Victoria, Jamison, Myrtleford, Omeo. We know they're out there and they are pure. So... Um, we need to leave them alone. Mm. <laughs> I noticed on the because I did spend a really long time looking at both Instagram pages last night. <laughs> um, there, are, this might, maybe this is a basic question, but I didn't know there are lots of black and tan dingoes as well. Are they potentially crossbred back in you know centuries ago? This is, this is what everybody asks us, and it's so amazing. People are blown away when they see our black and tans because what do they remind people of? A kelpie, but. We know that dingoes came first and black and tan Mm. dingoes have been here for a really long time. So actually it's probably more likely that the black and tan kelpie came from dingoes. Mm. So, yes, we have a black and tan. And if you think about our rainforest areas in Australia, a black and tan dingo fits really well in there with the, the black bark and the dark soil really hide. So dingoes... They come in three different colours. We've even got a cream dingo, pure cream, that lives near salt pans, you know, in the desert. So um, dingoes are really um, attuned to their environment and so black and tans go really well in those darker forests. Mm. But you can come and see some black and tan cubs at the moment and oh, they're yes, please. incredibly good. <laughs> and who, who's bringing dingoes to you? Is it uh, who finds them and delivers we, them? Um, we have... Um, our latest one, Sooty, who also is becoming famous on Instagram, a lovely cattle farmer found him 
and rang us um, thinking, you know, he wanted to keep him because he's so cute, but it's really not the right thing. Dingoes do not make good pets. They will destroy your house if they get bored. And they need um, dingoes mate for life. So they need another dingo. They can't be on their own. They get very anxious. So um, he did the right thing, an amazing man, and um, we have him now. And now he has friends. He's learning how to be a dingo. He's um, just the king of the cubs, actually. (laughs) He's um, a great little dingo. Fantastic. Well, the Dingo Discovery Sanctuary and Research Centre, it's your 30-year anniversary. I know. Our director, Lynn Watson, is just amazing. So for 30 years she's been fighting for dingoes seven days a week, Mm. 24 hours a day, and um, she's one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met. Mm. Well, you're at the uh, foothills of the Macedon Ranges. That's Liam Neeson territory. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Melbourne people come to us because we have this beautiful property, um, 40 acres, there's kangaroos, there's 80 types of birds, and there's dingoes. Okay. Well, you can go to at Dingo Discovery on Instagram and the Dingo, sorry, dingofoundation.org as well. And look, if you want to give, if you want to inflate Wandy's ego, it's Wandy uh, <laughs> underscore Dingo on Instagram as well. And uh, we've been chatting with Favel Parrot. Thanks so much, Favel. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Uh, Broden Kelly is a Melbourne-based comedian, actor and member of the, I guess, formerly globe-touring sketch comedy group Auntie Donna, whose YouTube channel has garnered over 300,000 subs and clocked up over 60 million views now. The team has released their Netflix original comedy series, Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun, available to stream now. And to tell us about it, the thespian and former theatre maker for Victorian school kids joins us on the line now. Broden, welcome to Breakfasters. Well, if it isn't my favourite breakfast radio show in the flesh, oh my gosh, the breakfasters. Oh, I'm just sitting here having my breakfast Danish with, I'm so happy to be on. Thank you for having me. Oh, our pleasure and congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, the show came out last night. Um it was all a bit too much for me. All the positivity was way too much. I had to put a flannel on my head and lay and have a lay down. Is uh, any any have any has anyone come out of the woodwork from the past? Yeah, every yeah. To be honest, can I get real with you guys? Yeah, please. Yes. Every ex girlfriend, every bully from school, every like legit. They were, hey man, good to yeah, congratulations. <laughs> like if I'm. And I used to tour, my first job out of acting school, I used to um, tour kids' theatre around Victoria about um, like teaching kids not to cyber bully. <laughs> but it was before anyone, and it was written by, like, boomers, and, it, and, it, and they didn't really know what cyber bullying was. So it was sort of just like, you just, it was pretty much just, just turn off your computer, kids. It was pretty <laughs> much that. Anyway, a few people have started tweeting, I'm pretty sure that guy came to my school in 2012 and told me not to cyber bully, (laughs) (laughs) which is funny. Uh, How would you um, describe the show to the uninitiated? Uh, Well, it's pretty much, well, it's, it's eight years of working together with the other boys and, um, and, and creating live ridiculousness. We kind of have, we're pretty much unbridled silliness and, um, 
and wackiness pretty much. And it's about the three of us living in a house where anything can happen. It's got the vibes of the young ones I've heard a lot, the mighty boosh, the goodies. Every different generation has has a reference point. <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, so just like silliness in a house. So it starts in a real world but can go into the ridiculous is the, is the, is the notion. You guys have been together for for many years. You all met at acting school. Uh, now, when you got this Netflix deal, um, it, it had what two failed pilots in in Australia. That's right, yeah. Can you tell us yeah, a bit about the Joe Biden sketch comedy. Mm. <laughs> Just keep running. Um, yeah, no, we uh, we we've been actually well, the first we did the Melbourne Comedy Festival in twenty third. 2012 in the same room as uh, Jezza. Yeah, and, in the broom uh, cupboard. <laughs> she used to show up with, a, with a, uh, her motorbike and a helmet under her arm and just be like, all right, let's do some comedy. <laughs> and, um, and then, but, you know, the first ever media we ever did was Triple R, um, uh, which was real cool, and we felt like we were a big deal, and I still feel like that. But then we, uh, we made, a, we made a, a pilot for the ABC and then one for Stan, and we never got that extra step. But we kind of just started talking in the US to producers and Ed Helms from The Office and The Hangover, um, his production company said, yeah, we really like you. Let's try and make a TV show. And we kind of just went along with it, thinking that it would go nowhere. And we went to America pretty much for a fun holiday and did all these TV pitches at networks and didn't take it very seriously. We thought it was a joke. And and we thought, well, this is a bit of a laugh. And then they called about a month later and said, yep, we'll give you six episodes. And we kind of... uh, we kind of went, oh my god, and um, and then we just sort of went to work and we threw everything we have at it. So the show's like, it's taking what we do on the live in our live shows, which we've done around everywhere in Melbourne and and around Australia, and and putting them on st- and trying to make a long form narrative with a mixture of our YouTube and online content. Mm. I guess you've had to keep it a secret for a while. Oh my god, <laughs> yes. Um, we found out about it. Two years ago, like Whoa. they rang up and said, "Yeah, from now, from this point, they said it's gonna. Yep, um, we're, we're, let's do this." And then they said, "So we'll get back to you in a few weeks, but you know, start packing your bags." And we were on a plane like twelve months later, wow. just with like you know the way the way Hollywood is and production is. And then we finished it March twelfth. The edit, the editing of the show finished March twelfth, and. We were told the night we finished it to get on a plane back from America because of uh, this virus that was taking over, and um, so it's just like you know, it's it's been sitting there ready to go, and we weren't allowed to talk about it literally until like two weeks ago when the trailer came out. So it's been it's I've just been sitting here like with my gut tensed for two years, (laughs) and uh, it feels good to be able to talk about it. Uh, tell us about your commitment to silliness and the, some of the seriousness that goes into being absurd. Um, you know, and I'm yeah. I'm thinking even in part the props. You know, like and and the you know like a a ham blanket or you know <laughs> and I and I drink piss bib. Um. <laughs> that's Can a you... reference to the show. You're not saying that I <laughs> that's about me. But... That's right. Um. Yeah, no, we, we, yeah, like we have a very, our mantra as a group is just whatever's funniest. We're not trying to say anything else apart from we're, we're, a, we're a, an oasis or a retreat for people to be able to go and just let their mind be silly and ridiculous. Um, but we're like, that's kind of paired with the fact that we're, uh, 
we work Monday to Friday, nine to five, pretty much. We treat we treat it like a job. So it, it's kind of the pairing of like a, a, quite a solid work ethic and making jokes about farts mm. and <laughs> drinking urine. Um, but there is more. <laughs> but yeah, that's it's kind of pairing those two things, I guess. You've had quite a following on on YouTube, and there are certain other comics that are known as YouTube comics. Um, and I guess, you know, there's a demographic of, you know, young teenage boys and stuff that um, I think, you know, are, are well into this sort of – because it's accessible to them. Yeah. What do you think sets you apart from other YouTube comedians and, like, what makes you yeah. more successful, I guess, you know? I think when comedy used to be developed, you know, fun, uh, for the most part on the stage, you got to get immediate response and you got to have, you got to see that the whole public. But now with the way that the internet works, uh, you can get very successful very quickly and not have any sort of regulations around that. So you can get really successful for making a video that's potentially a little bit grubby or that, you know, if you look back in five years, you might not be proud of it. And I think that can sort of – there's some really talented young comedic voices in Australia whose development as writers and creators is kind of stymied because they became successful on their first video, which is maybe a bit grubby. And it's kind of a shame. We kind of came up in the live scene and, and we and we kind of appreciate that we have this young, you know, predominantly male boy audience. And when we were growing up, there was people who – were, were good role models and there were people who probably weren't good role models. And we, you know, we don't want to go out there and tell people how to live their life, but we also do want to just set a, a good example. We, we never punch down. We never, we never, you know, look to someone and, and try and pick on them for who they are. But, you know, it's usually just us stuffing around in a house together is our kind of mantra. And, and, uh, and, and that's kind of, we've been able to curate and garner like a positive fan base who, are nice to each other. You can see in a lot of places and, and spheres on, online where people can get very, very vicious. And I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, in all of our communities, whether that's on YouTube or Facebook or Reddit or any of those places, the community is really positive and supportive. And in the last 24 hours, it's like, it's, it's bad. It's fruit for us because they are just so happy and they feel ownership of what we're doing. Um, and you know, not just Australians, but like people all over the world. And it's really cool. What about these, uh, you know, these comedy icons, you know, uh, Weird Al and Scott Ackerman and, uh, you know, Ed Helms, and then you're yeah. bringing Grant Denyer to them. There's, <laughs> is there ever, you're shamelessly Australian, uh, mm. and what, what was their reaction to just, uh, to you presenting with them these yeah. these references? Yeah, well, uh, we, um, our mantra was we wrote on the top of our writer's room above everything else. We just like our mantra for the whole series is this is us destroying a Netflix show or just like taking it, <laughs> taking this, like just like if, what would these naughty boys do if they were given the a, a Hollywood budget and what how would they destroy it? So like there's references. Our hope was that, you know, there's Ed Helms in it. So you think that it's going to be this big, you know, big production. It's going to be like The Office. And then if Australians watch it and they and in episode two, we're talking about Car City Ringwood <laughs> and Rams Denya, um, that, that would kind of endear them to it was our hope. But also it's just that thing of 
the funniest thing is really truth. And if people don't understand a certain reference, they're going to get the energy of it anyway. Mm. Um, when we first did Edinburgh and things like that, we'd change references. Like we'd change Vegemite to Marmite and uh, uh, yummy food to bland food and things like that because <laughs> just to connect to the local community. And, um, and um, what we found is that like people overseas kind of enjoy, think we're exotic. Mm. Like, oh, Car City Ringwood. It's like, for them, it's like <laughs> drinking drinking rum out of a out of a coconut (laughs) (laughs) um and what about uh you know just giving up comedy getting serious you know going back to your thespian roots when are you gonna um stop being funny and take on a serious role as has always been your destiny that was our initial legitimately and i feel kind of cringy saying this but we our goal because we left acting we went we left Ballarat acting school in 20 2011 and um my whole plan as a egotistical little 20 year old was like my plan is to build a profile through comedy and then step <laughs> straight into the Melbourne theatre company and trod the boards <laughs> um and uh I kind of don't want to do it anymore because <laughs> like, like, writing is really like writing your own stuff like once I hate to yeah, but like being able to talk about Car City Ringwood is kind of funnier than you know redoing another Don Williams, Don, uh, Dave Williams. What's his name? Yeah. Dave, 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 Dave the, Williams. The club. Yeah, Nothing sketchy. wrong with Dave. Oh, Williams. Dave Williams. Yeah. is gone now. Yeah. yeah. No, Simon Phillips. I'm so sorry. Artistic director, Simon. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and just quickly, I suppose you used to be on the door of the long room. Is that right? And I'm wondering now yeah. that you've got the Netflix series, can you, can you turn up and get on the inside? <laughs> yeah. I, um, I used to, my, my first job out of, uh, out of high school was I worked on at the MCG on the long room doors telling old doctors and surgeons that they had to have the suit and a tie on to get into the long room. And then I'd be called <laughs> lots of very colorful 1940s words. And then, um, and, uh, yes, I'm probably going to, uh, you know, just start going in. Do you know who I am, young man? I made that Netflix show. Let me in. I'm very happy to move to that. Get a walking stick, a little mustache. It'll be good. Brilliant. Well, uh, Auntie Donna's debut Netflix series, Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun. It's premiered globally uh, last night in Australia, and it's, Available there everywhere. It's six part sketch comedy series. Uh, congratulations again, Broden. And uh, it's yeah, it's tremendous news, and it's very funny, and uh, it's it's just very exciting for Melbourne We're comedy very as well. Proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I just say as well, thank you. As I said, Triple R is the first place that ever put us on, and constantly over the last eight nine years have had us on. At like whenever we've wanted to help push. Thank you to everyone at Triple R, but also thank you to the audience who like appreciate Triple R and how important it is to Melbourne. Um, yes, yeah, so I just wanted to say that. Like, thank you to everyone at Triple R and the wider Triple R community. Good on you. Thanks, Broden. <laughs> that's right, Triple R. I took myself on a little adventure yesterday. Uh, just went. Went out for a a bit of a bushwalk. Went out for a little hike, um, we, and I went to the Tarabulga National Park, which is yeah, about about two hours away from here. It's near, near Taralgon. Um, it's cool. They've got like a um, a suspension bridge. I was like, mm. I love a bridge in a forest. Love it. 
I'm going to go, I'll go check that out. Um, and also now, because I've been doing a lot of um, hiking and bushwalking and stuff, and it's been really great because no one else has been around mm. um, or very few people. Uh, so, I've, you know, been to Wilson's Prom a couple of times and it's just been, yeah, really, really lovely. But also now because the ring of steel is down and people are kind of getting out and about a bit more, there was there was a few people, mm. uh, you know, at, at Tarabolga. Uh, and also one of my favourite type of people when you're out and about is the um, the very chatty man that pretends to know a lot about stuff but really doesn't know much about anything. Oh, wonderful. Good to run into one of those in the middle of the forest. It really is. And do you know what the, the best thing was is that I didn't run into him. It was somebody. So he was, I'd come, you kind of walk, to get to the bridge, you kind of walk down and there's a platform that you can stand on and look down at the bridge and before you before you get to it. And so I got to this platform and I was like, oh, I'll have a, you know, look at this bridge. And I looked down and I could hear people talking and I obviously someone had just taken a photo for somebody else. So I was like, oh, thanks very much for that. Cheers. And then so there was a young, I'm assuming they were Irish, um, young Irish couple and chatty man with his partner, I'm assuming. And a chatty man was obviously doing all of the talking and it was wonderful. What a, it was just, I loved watching because I was far enough away not to be involved, but also the acoustics in the forest <laughs> were so good that I could hear every single word <laughs> and feel the Irish couple's pain because obviously they just wanted to, I mean, they were friendly enough, but you could tell that they wanted to get across that bridge. Mm. But there was chatty, informative man standing in the way. <laughs> what is there to inform in in the forest? What does does he know about suspension bridges? What's the like what's his expertise? Everything. Uh world events. Um but also <laughs> very good at adding a bit of sizzle to it. Mm. Like, you know, I think when he found out that the, the couple weren't from Australia, he was like, Oh yeah, no, we've had it yeah, we've had a tough year here, that's for sure. We've had a tough year. I mean, you know, the start we had the fires at the start of the year and then we uh had um then there was another fire and then there was uh there was a big store, there was some floods and of course there was a pandemic. Then we had another fire and um there's a big storm coming in tonight. Big storm and I'm like, I think you've added a couple of fires and floods to this store. <laughs> I don't remember. And there was that, both at once. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just going to have to check your chit-chat here. Yeah. And then it went, so it went into, uh, it goes, oh, yeah, there's big, big storm, big storm coming tonight. So, if, yeah, if you've got a car, like, get it un- underground, get it underground, there'll be hail damage. So make sure you put it under undercover yeah big hail yeah there'll be big ones it's all last you know just last week there was a guy i don't know if you saw the footage of it there's a guy in, in his house and you could hear and he looked up and how how had come in through his roof like plaster and shit everywhere oh it was unbelievable and then it went from hailstorms to cars like obviously put your car undercover you don't want to get hail damage 
And he's like, do you know the Ford Fort? Oh, my God. Oh, God. Is he telling this to tourists? Like <laughs> Irish yeah. tourists? Yes. Yeah, you know, it's just your average sedan. So um, last year they had a ship coming over, a whole ship full of them, all hailed at, like got hit by hail, all of them. And what they did was when they <laughs> when they came over here, they just they took those cars all around Australia and sold them for nothing. Because it had, and all you know, people but all you need to do is fix a bit of you know, and sometimes you'll see that you'll see a Ford Fort and you'll see a couple of oh, then sort of like, oh no, where you got that? Oh, you got a good bloody deal, classic anyway, correspondent. Uh, Chrysler, you was, I've got a white Chrysler out in the you would have seen it out in the car park, that's mine. I've got a, I've got a good deal on that. <laughs> His partner is there the whole time. Do you know, yes, but mm. do you know, I, I got a photo, like I took a selfie, but also to capture the moment because it was, the moat was these, this young Irish couple standing at the start of the bridge, this man in the middle of talking about his white Christ, though, but he got a, he got a great deal on it. He got a great deal. Like. Cool. I, I walked in and I said, I'll see you at the run out. So, oh, you're a cheeky man. I came back for the run out deal. And I said, all this stuff, how much is all, all the sat nav and all that? How much is that? And I go, it's 18,000. Like, have that all that. And he goes, I don't want it. Don't <laughs> so, I've got a good deal. I've got like $24,000 off my car. And then, and then later he said, oh, if you want it all back, it's $1,800 if you want to get $1,800, not. Not the twenty four thousand or the eighteen thousand. No, eighteen hundred. Put it. Well, I'll put it in, mate. Put, I'll pay eighteen hundred and put it in. Anyway, while this is happening, the partner I just saw her leaning over the bridge, <laughs> <laughs> and obviously she's heard these conversations so many times, and she's she's obviously gone. All right, mate, you. You keep chatting to your new mates and I'm yeah. just going to have a look at the view <laughs> over here. Stare in the middle distance and contemplate things. <laughs> yeah. yeah See if so I can make a run good. for it. Oh, man, it was just, it was such a such a treat to to hear other people talking again and not have to, oh, man, I not just. Contribute. Not, and now I know about crisis and hail damage and it was just, it was very informative and, um. So I'm looking forward to uh, meeting more informative chatty men out in the real world. In forests. Did the Irish couple then then make their way to the nearest Chrysler dealership? Like, I just want to know his motivation between telling these tourists. I don't even know why I'm trying to find logic in this. Man has <laughs> I just always, just quickly, I always wonder sometimes with the wives or the partners or whoever, sometimes they're like, finally, for 20 minutes, someone yeah. else's problem. <laughs> it's like putting the the toddler in front of a front of a DVD, you know. <laughs> Triple R. Fee writes in the house to talk books. Morning, Fee. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is so nice to see your faces, and also. It's really beginning to feel very summery because 
not everyone. I mean, Daniel's still in complete darkness, but everyone else is, is just psychologically, sunshine. Yeah, just psychologically, <laughs> emotionally, all of those, all of those things. Um, I'm here this morning to talk about Cherry Beach by Laura McPhee Brown, and I'm very excited to talk to you guys about it. Has anyone heard anything about this one? I have not. No, it's all new. All right, great, excellent. Uh, so it's the debut novel by McPhee Brown, and it tells the story of Hetty and Ness. They've been mates since primary school in outer Melbourne. They grew up in Ringwood, or Ringers, as I believe it is preferred to be known. And Hetty is beautiful and charismatic, and she catches everyone everyone's eyes. The story is told through the eyes of Ness, who is quieter and spends a lot of time watching and reflecting, and she watches everyone around Hetty in particular. Um, in their early 20s, they decide to try and live abroad and in Canada, and they move together to Toronto and share a room in a share house. And this is sort of where their lives begin to diverge. So Hetty becomes a bartender and so is up all night and, and sleeps all day, and she kind of begins to fade from Ness's view. And Ness finds work in an art gallery slash cafe and begins dating and, and feeling more settled at least momentarily through the, the six months or so that they're living there at that time. Um, to me, this book was really symbolic of that sort of restless feeling you might have in your late teens and early 20s. You know, I'm, I'm 35 now and it made me sad I didn't get to read it during my own 20s as it resonated so much with me, I can't, I can just imagine it would have resonated even more than it, than it already did. Mm. So um, Ness has this beautiful, dreamy, vivid inner monologue and McPhee Brown's text is so, so gentle and poetic and descriptive, but it's not heavy on the adjectives, which is a personal like bugbear of mine because um, I often get lifted out of books that are really adjective heavy, but this was totally immersive. I would often pause and, and think about what I was reading as each sentence seemed so beautiful in isolation and also as part of the whole. And I know that this is not correct based on my knowledge of the publishing industry, but it felt to me like the book appeared fully formed and the editor didn't do anything but like pick the font. And I know that that's <laughs> probably the mark of an excellent editor, but it just felt so effortless to read. It, it just, it must've just appeared to me in a dream or something mm. like that is not the writing process, I'm sure, of of any writer. But that's as the reader, it just felt just so natural. It just it was just like, whoop, here it is. Um, and, Bloody hell, that's yeah. quite <laughs> quite an observation. <laughs> it's it's um, definitely one of one of the best fiction books I've read this year. It was just. Mm. Um, and I've, I'm up to, I think Goodreads tells me I'm, I've read 95, 96 books this year. So that's, yeah, it's definitely, definitely up there. And one of my, my favourite parts of the book was the fact that Ness is queer and it just has the most beautiful exploration of bodies and sex and identity. And it was so deeply compelling and empathetic. It was gentle and flowing, but it also explored ideas around anger and frustration around the ideas of coming out and having to come out to people and like, is it a big deal or is it not a big deal? And do you want people to view it as a big deal or do you want them to just not even acknowledge it? And the relationships that Ness has during the book are so well-rounded. I got far too emotionally invested in them mm -hmm. <laughs> along with the friendship between Hetty and Ness. 
And and that's a real strength in, in McPhee Brown's writing. You expect Hetty and Ness to be well-rounded, clearly, as they're the main characters. But all the characters, even minor ones, like some of the housemates, just gave you this really – you just had this really strong sense of their identity. I felt like I, I knew the, the ramshackle share house and, and the people that lived there, and I was just – far too invested in everything that happened in that mm. house. <laughs> I know as a few Australians or Melbournians who've gone to Toronto, did do you get the impression from the book that it, there's a bit of a culture there of Well, it it did like I mean, she's so wonderful at describing place that I assume that she must have been there. So Ringwood and Warrandite swimming holes are, are in the book mm. and I know those places and they felt really familiar. I haven't been to Canada. Um, but I felt like based on this book and based on Ringwood and Warrandyte, yeah, yeah, she, she must have spent some time there. Um, it's also been compared to Sally Rooney like everything else this year, mm. but the writing most particularly reminds me of Margaret Atwood and her book um, Cat's Eye. And this is like before she was totally obsessed with writing dystopian women's future doom books. So... <laughs> Like, Cat's Eye is a book about a woman and she's an artist. So, uh, but both both Cat's Eye and Cherry Beach describe art and paintings. And so it'd be really easy as an author to, like, make up an artist or a painter. But they describe and discuss real paintings. And so it was such a joy to look up the artists mentioned in Cherry Beach who were Canadian, um, particularly Emily Carr, and look at the work and then reread paragraphs of discussion and I loved that and I also loved learning new things about artists that I'd never heard of before it was it's really wonderful to kind of return to a paragraph after looking at the art that was being looked at by the characters mm. and have you gone down a Laura McPhee Brown rabbit hole well she was published in the Saturday paper on the weekend very conveniently with a short story I was like thanks dudes you, uh, you sorted that out rather well for me <laughs> Um, and I just wanted to add as well that this book was released in February, but due to the fires and COVID, I feel like it didn't get the recognition it deserved at the, at the time. As a great example of this, I didn't read it until October this year, and somehow I just missed it until then, which just seems bonkers to me. So, yeah, it's um, it's it's really, really good, though I do want to give a bit of a, a warning. It is quite emotional at points. And there is some depictions of um, assault in the book. Um, there was there was actually uh, there was actually a moment when my partner walked in and saw me reading it with like tears streaming down my face, and then gave me this slow sort of leg pat, and then just said, "I'm gonna go make you a cup of tea." And so like <laughs> this book might emotionally destroy you in places, but by the end, hopefully you'll feel like I did, very cathartic. And also potentially have people making you beverages due to concern. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, right. it's described as com- as coming of age novel. Is that like uh, I feel like that sounds like age, it dumbs it down a bit. It totally dumbs it down. Coming mm. of age is like if you're younger than 27, then your books are coming of age. Right. Book <laughs> to me. Um, I mean, it's like emotional growth. I guess we probably, you know, that sort of period of flux where you don't quite know what you're necessarily feeling like you're going to do next, you know, where you have that kind of that sensation, or at least I had in my early twenties of, of freedom of time of kind of just seeing what's going to happen Mm. before you have to get sorted with like, I don't know, the career or what have you, you know, all those sorts of 
boring things, but you have this this time to um, explore who you are and what you're going to do. Well, it's uh, one of Faye's picks of the year, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but yeah. I'm going to <laughs> because um, there's a painting on the cover. I'm holding it up to the camera for <gasps> oh, you guys. It's nice. yeah. by an Australian artist, Emma Curry. Um, it's amazing and I would totally have it on my wall. It's The book looks beautiful and is beautiful on the inside too. All right. Will you review your 100th book of the year for us as well? <gasps> Goodness. Yeah, I've got. I think I've got two more to go with you guys. Exciting. Okay, excellent. <laughs> um, we've been talking about Cherry Beach by Laura McPhee Brown. Thanks, heaps, Fee. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Triple. Ah. Uh. Friday Funny Bugger this week, we're fortunate to be joined by award-winning comedian, writer, director and cultural education practitioner, Shirley Wood. Morning, Shirley. Good morning, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) What's uh, what's going on in your world? Ah, hey. Hi to the mob out there. I'm Shirley Hood, Noongar, Kurnai Gullich tomorrow. Want to say hello to everybody and out to Wurundjeri country out here in the Kulin Nations. Hope you're all cool and deadly, man. <laughs> yeah, that's the way to go for today. But um, I've been I've been enjoying my time doing the COVID in in Melbourne. Hey, so 2020, which I thought was going to be like clear vision coming out, 2020 vision, all that. <laughs> I was talking about it, man, getting ready, and um, and then it all just got shut down, you know. Mm. And, and it was like, when I first heard about it, it was like, oh, blooming Corona, you know. It was the Corona. I went out and got lemons, man. Just <laughs> them, you know, and, and I sort of took it half as a joke and then all of a sudden it became really serious. And that minute we've been locked down for nine months, you know. <laughs> hey, you know, could have had a baby in that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's crazy, so... You know, I've just been sort of doing the things, trying to, you know, find time to keep um, keep yourself busy, you know. You know, I tried to, like, I went for a time when I was starting to learn piano, that sort of stuff, coming out, yeah, yeah. I went and picked, like, a really hard, hard Queen song Mm. (laughs) and just start with that song. And, but I really loved it and it took, like, it took a lot of my time yeah. when I had moments, you know. Yeah. What, like what, what Queen song, can I ask? Yeah, um, Love of My Life. Right. So Ambitious. Out there, and for anybody, you know, that is the hardest song to start on the piano. But I, I love that song and it's sort of revamped with me lately during COVID. Mm. Yeah. And so it was like, yeah, for me, COVID was like 50 shades of grey, you know, without the man or the power struggle. Man. <laughs> then then what is it without that? <laughs> um, it was just like, um, well, going through the stuff, you know, and then so I tried to, okay, I'll bloody try to better myself, you know. So I got that sort of style and. I tried to give up smoking, you know, court case still pending. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, and 
I talk about trying to give up drinking and then I didn't just fall off the wag and I dragged it down the street, took it out, you know. <laughs> you know <laughs> insurance to buy more bourbon, mate. <laughs> so I've been through all the craziness of just trying to keep myself busy. But, um, you know, when I think about, um, like, this whole year, you know, I've actually had time to create, mm. you know. And sometimes I think, you know, as my black fellow self, as my Aboriginal self, I just reckon Mother Nature said, time to stop, buddy. For everyone, get to know your families, get to know, you know, your close mates out there and get to know yourself for a second, Yeah. You know? You know, and so I just sort of took COVID like that. Now I'm just like, oh, I should have went out walking. (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking how, how like, uh, inspiring it was that you had such a clear head, such acceptance, and then you realised actually, no, that was all a lie. (laughs) Yeah, it was like, oh, my goodness, you know. And you try to think, but I had a lot of great creative time and I – you know, missed the heck out of family. We had a few um, births during this COVID time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a family, we're really happy and watching all the young ones come through. So, you know, and now it's funny because people are, are taking off again, you know, and the kids are like, you know, where am I, where are you going, mum and dad, you know? It's like I'm off to work now. <laughs> <laughs> this time so we can do it you know uh surely you've always um it's been amazing how you can look at a dire situation and and you know make it more fun and 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 whatnot i'm talking about um like how do you if you were to watch the first fleet how do you like to how do you like to watch that how i like to watch that in rewind motherfucker. <laughs> You're um you're also part of a, a show at Fringe, is that right? Yes, and that's what's coming up. So we just sort of like woohoo, we're out, mm. you know, allowed to see other people like, you know, still um you know, 1.5 metres, but we're still allowed out there. Um, um, for our fringe show, I'm a guest for uh, a great show from uh, Diana Nyan called The Snort Pass Comedy. Snort Pass Comedy. So there's a few of us diverse kind of crazy people out there who just sort of come together for the fringe. Let's do the fringe. Let's support the fringe. And get all of our artists out there and and seen again. You know, the idea of performing is a really strange concept now. Yeah. You know? Are you are you nervous about performing again, or are you excited? Um, or yeah, well, um, it's excited. It's 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 sort of on the Zoom stuff still. You know. Yeah. It's on the Zoom stuff, so it's you know we're looking at flat screens and all that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. So. Um, still sort of um, getting used to it. The yeah. funny that when you've been doing gigs, because over this time I did a gig at the Hamer Hall, mm. at the Hamer Hall, like wow. in thing, but there was there were no audience 
in it at all. And so that was a really freaky sort of show for me because there were a lot of cameras, but the camera people have been trained not to make a sound because it stuffs up the recordings, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't make a peep. And to throw out, you know, some great comedy to like, a massive hall that where you can you can't hear any response <laughs> like crazy. Wow. Crazy. And so it was sort of good learning for me, you know. Like it felt like rehearsal, but it was it was live, yeah. you know. And God. so yeah, so I've been keeping a few things out there and a few performances, but it's it, it's just so weird on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Amazing. Comedy to an empty Hamer Hall. Now that's hilarious. <laughs> that's a really strange thing. And I tell you what, the the change that I found sort of coming back in, like um like I was I was going to the post office a lot, you know, going to the post office and going to Coles or Woolies or a supermarket, you know. They were the only things open. And the other day I went to the post office and next second I saw, like, all the shops open and, like, clothes and lights and, like, people walking around. And I, I just felt, you know, that feeling where you're, um, where your taste buds, where you taste something delicious yeah. and all the back of your, yeah, your jaw, like, just get all excited, yeah? Well, that happened for my eyes, it was like, wow, and I really felt that change of, like, you know, we're allowed to walk around and we're allowed to, like, yeah, have a look at things. Not yeah. all the shops were open, but enough. Mm. And now you've got babies to meet in person as well. <laughs> yes, exactly, man. And that's really a beauty, beautiful thing of life, I think, you know. And that's why it's like, you know, if you're feeling depressed or whatever, you know, just make sure you have a yarn to your good friends out there and 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 tune into the fringe even to see what's out there because we're all looking for some sort of um, you know, connection in the community again. And I reckon fringe has got it. Absolutely. Um, Shirley is part of the Fringe Show, the Snortcast Variety Show. It's on from November 19 through to 24. And for more information and to check out the whole catalogue of shows, go to melbournefringe.com.au. Shirley, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Oh, it's been a blast for you guys. And good to see you early this morning. Hey. <laughs> yeah, mate. Well done. Thanks. <laughs> Triple R and Acker present Niram Nam, an online exhibition. I'll see you as we all coming out, hey? Brilliant. Take care, hey? Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.